In today's episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, we have the rare pleasure to dive deep into the recesses of Bill's mind and understand all the factors and decisions that were at play in one of the greatest, biggest NFL draft decisions of all time, the choice between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf at the top of the 1998 NFL draft. It's one of those things from a football perspective that you can look back at and say, you know, kind of an easy one, right? Well, at the time, not at all. One of the most debated, most controversial, most interesting decisions in the history of the NFL at the quarterback position. So without any further ado, this is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and this is the decision between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf. All right, very cool. So in today's episode, we are going to take a look back at a time that was simpler and gentler, 1997 to 1998. We're going to take an in-depth look today at one of the most consequential decisions in NFL history, the decision between Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf. Uh, you know, so how are we doing today, guys? Bill, what do you think? You ready to talk about this? I am. A trip back in time. Looking forward to it. Should be fun. Well, I think before we get into the actual decision, there's quite a bit of backstory that we need to kind of figure out and look at in regards to how does someone who, for the first time in the history of sports that this had happened before the Vegas Knights did it, in 1996 led a team to the NFC Championship game and a half away from the Super Bowl, how do we go from Carolina to Indy in a blink of an eye in an offseason? Well, there is a backstory to it. In uh, 1989, Commissioner Tagliabue appointed me to a group that he was augmenting onto the NFL Management Council. He was changing the whole paradigm of how we dealt with the union. And there were four of us. George Young, uh, then the general manager of the New York Giants. Steve Gutman, then the president of the New York Jets. Steve was a business guy. Uh, Jim Irsay, then the general manager of the Indianapolis Colts, and myself. I was at that time the general manager of the Buffalo Bills. And uh, at that time, uh, we were trying to create what has become the salary cap. Right. So those four people were charged by Commissioner Tagliabue with coming up with a system that would eventually become the salary cap. Right. It took us four years of hard work, meeting after meeting, obviously negotiating with the Players Association, and lots of conversation with the, the, the Players Association that wasn't necessarily negotiation. Right. In addition to which, we talked to people from Major League Baseball, and we talked extensively with Gary Bettman, who at that time was the number two guy to David Stern in the NBA. Right. So we studied the NBA system. In that process, which I, I, I probably ended up to be about 35 hours a week in addition to your regular job. Right, where you're trying to juggle these two things <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Jim Irsay and I were side by side right. for four years. Uh, we were competitors on the field, but uh, – but definitely compatriots off the field. So we developed a friendship, the mutual respect. And so uh, when I went to Carolina, 
the Colts were still owned by Jim's dad. He passed away, and there was a battle between his second wife, then widow, and Jim and his mother, who right. was Mr. Ursi's mm-hmm. first wife. Which is always good family fun. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so Jim's uh, inheritance of the team was apparently at risk. There was some a bunch of legal proceedings, um, and, and he ended up getting the team. And at that time, we'd gone to, uh, in the second year in Carolina, we'd gone to the championship game. Um, ownership there had expectations that we couldn't meet and, and, and really didn't recognize. Because you guys how, had exceeded all expectations. Yeah. Well, we did it on, on purpose, but the team, because we had to sell PSLs. Right. But the team was going to have to be rebuilt around Kerry Collins. Right. And, um, and I'm not sure ownership recognized that. They thought famously we were one player away from beating the Green Bay Packers or the Dallas Cowboys. They thought management thought Dallas Dallas was the, the biggest threat. Well, because you had beaten Dallas in the playoffs that year to get, the, but Emmett was hurt and it was it was a little. Weird. Emmett was hurt. Troy got hurt during the game. Right. Um, and and Mr. Richardson took Dom and uh, Dom uh, Capers and I, the coach, to lunch the day after the game, which is never a good thing. Obviously, right. you're, you know, you're after the Green Bay game, you're licking your wounds. You in, know, in any field in life, I think. When you Probably have to true. Somebody after yeah. that, it's never good. And he said, "We're one player away." And, right. and I said, "No, we're not." Did he have any sense who that player was? No, not really. I don't think so. But he, he felt like we were. And I said, famously said, Mr. Richardson, if we played the Green Bay Packers ten times in a vacant lot, they'd win nine. Right. So. <laughs> Uh, that's kind of the end of from that day forward it's gonna be 10 my star was not on the ascension things were sinking a little (laughs) bit i I remember when you told me repeated that conversation that night my heart sank at the time yeah Yeah. because you're like "Eh, this is gonna be fun so uh, um you know lo and behold the following season um which turned out to be not a great one for us because we had a lot of injuries and a holdout with Kevin Green, which right. I thought was, you know, not handled as, as well as it should have been. Uh, Jim, I think I may have been scouting a preseason game and uh, in Indianapolis, and Jim said to me, hey, if you're ever dissatisfied, you feel like you want to go, Pick up the phone and call me. Let me know first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what he Which said. It's always nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, things were not going well, and I thought it was it was it was you know probably time to leave. Right. And uh, and I picked up the phone and called him, and he said, "Okay, we'll, right. we'll get the wheels turning." Ultimately, to my surprise and chagrin. He gave the Panthers a third-round draft choice yeah. for my rights, which was I thought was disgraceful and unheard of. But right. well, also <laughs> a pick you could have used. That's a yes. player you could have wanted. Yeah, but it is pretty cool that you were traded at some level for a third-round pick. Yeah, yeah. Now it's also true though that we had an alternative at the time. If you remember, Seattle, we did very much wanted you to come. We spent a lot of time weighing the pros and cons of those two cities, and you obviously chose Indy for the for the reason that will become apparent as this conversation proceeds. Well, I, I didn't know Mr. Ursay very well. I knew him to say hello to. He'd always been cordial to me. Um, and, you know, you hear rumors and things like that, but I didn't put much stock in it. I did know, because I worked with Jim for four years, um, what kind of a person he was. 
So I had absolutely no qualms about going to work for him. And, uh, you know, from that day to this, we remain close friends and, and I have great respect for him. And uh, I very much enjoyed working uh, with him. And, you know, you have rough spots in every organization. And anytime there's a transition from one group to another, starting at the top with Jim and people that he brought in, which was me, obviously, the first one. Um, there's, there's always some bumps in the road, but we got through it. But so knowing that, did you have to think about and sort of thinking through the kind of Seattle indie decision? What were the economics in indie like at that point? Like you've got an ownership change, but season ticket sales strong. Did they have a solid cap situation? Um, the cap was just uh, was just coming in. Right. So that was not a that was not, not really a major a, concern. No. Uh, and both of us knew the cap almost better than anybody because right. we knew the ins and outs of it. Um, so uh, that part of it w- was not a consideration. Um, they didn't have any cap problems because they didn't pay very many big salaries. Right. Um, the team had been 2-14 and 14 the previous year, but they had gone through a rough spot in the sense that Bill Tobin was the general manager – I think he had inherited Ted Marchabroda. Uh, Bill had replaced. Jim was kind of in limbo at that point in time. And Bill got rid of Ted Marchabroda, who, who had done well with the Colts and was very, um, very popular with Lindy Infante. And Jim Harbaugh came in to be, ironically enough, to be the quarterback. And... They slid downhill, two bad seasons, uh, and Jim Irsay, then the owner, decided to make a change and remove Bill Tobin, right. brought me in to replace him, uh, and, and he had uh, replaced Lindy even before I came. Right. So all of that was ancient history as far as know. I was concerned. Right. I that's came that's in tough. there with a clean slate and let's go. So that's that's the way I viewed it. Right. Do you worry at all about like the economic situation of the frame? How much info do you have on that in terms of are season ticket sales strong with the fan base like, you know, those um, kind of season tickets? Well, um, that, that well, that's an interesting question. Looking back on it now. No, I didn't. Right. I, I, I didn't know then what I know now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so those are probably no, yeah. no sooner did I did I get there and get my feet on the ground and kind of get a lay of the land than I recognized that in the pantheon of Indiana sports and Indianapolis sports, we were then fifth on the, pe- on the in the pecking order. First was IU basketball. Right. Second was the Indiana Pacers. Right. For reasons that mm-hmm. had to do with civic pride. Yeah. They were actually taken over by the city for a be- period of time when they were going to move out of the ABA. And you had Reggie Miller. You're right. And a good team. The battle with the Knicks. Yeah, exactly. Knicks versus the Hicks. Right, which was awesome. And 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 then you had Mel Simon. And and the Simon family, who was a a beloved family in Indianapolis for for good reason. And uh, and then third was Purdue basketball. Fourth was the Indy 500. Right. Which, of course – I didn't know what a civic treasure right, it was. Yeah. And then was the Colts. Right. So you're you're at the fifth on this list. Yeah. Like, so we're we even do? a little bit lower in the pecking order than we had been in Buffalo right. when, when when we when we took over there. Right. Uh, at least the Bills were a, people viewed them as a 
as a, there, there wasn't a lot of civic pride in them, but but there's an institution. It's an institution that's well and said. It's the only game in town. Yes, you had the Sabers and you had and, that's, and yeah. that stuff. But yeah. that is the sort of thing. That's correct. So it, it was different than I had perceived it as being, but it didn't make any difference because right. if you won, you were going to. You know, winning cures all else. Right, you're here, so, and it's time to go. It's time to go, yeah. You right. can't worry about that. Yeah. So when you went, I remember some of our initial discussions, we talked about the fact that as you build out a team, you can't build out offense and defense at the same time. And you had some strong theories, not just from a football standpoint, but from about building the reputation of the team, building the popularity of the team, why you had to go the way you went. Well, Jim and I decided soon after I got there, that Jim Harbaugh w- was not going to be the quarterback of the future. And the principal reason for that was not that Jim wasn't a good quarterback. He was, and he very popular, captain right. comeback. You know, Had and, been doing an AFC title game two years yeah, before. Yeah, deservedly so. Yeah. But now we had, by virtue of the 2-14, and 14, we had the first pick in the draft. So we were going to get one chance to take – a franchise quarterback, a guy who is going to lead you ostensibly for 10 years or more and play at a high level. So that was going to be the choice. There was no other choice than to do that if the guy at the top was deserving of the pick. Right. And we we both thought that there would be somebody there. So you never thought – was there ever a conversation around, hey, you've got – Harbaugh, you have Marshall Falk, you have a potential number one receiver in Marvin Harrison. You kind of have the left tackle. They had had a decent draft in 97. Oh, yeah. Getting Barry, getting Tariq yep. Glenn at the top of the draft. Yeah. How much did that weigh into – so even if it was like 5%, did you kind of think, hey, with having the number one pick, you know, can, can we win with this roster as constituted if we maybe move back, accumulate picks, or just because the quarterbacks were there at one, you just sort of have to pull the trigger on that? Both Jim and I believed uh, then, and I think it's fair to say we believe now. I'll speak for myself, I, but I think he feels still feels the same way. Right. That the quarterback is the key guy. You are never going to the promised land unless you have a great quarterback. Right. And I came across a study the other day done by Mike Giddings, who runs a service called Pro Scout who we have been with for my entire career, going all the way back to Kansas City, um, where he he studied the last 20 Super Bowl winners. And of those 20, only two had quarterbacks who did not play at the highest level. So that tells you it validates that theory. So quarterbacks, number one. Anything else is, is in my view, and at that time in Jim's view, is is simply going down the wrong road. You got to have the quarterback if you're going to go to the promised land. And he didn't feel, and I, I tended to agree that that Jim Harbaugh was that guy. And so the question then was, what's the talent level at the top of the draft relative to someone who would be deserving of that first round pick? Uh, I'm sorry, first pick in the draft. Right. If you have the if you have a pick in the top ten, Tony Dungy codified this and. He's spoken of it often, and it's absolutely true. If you have a pick in the top 10, you want a game changer, number one. You want a guy who scores touchdowns, throws touchdowns, intercepts the ball and and, and causes turnovers, 
or sacks the quarterback on his own. Right. That he can beat any offensive tackle in the game. That's who you're looking for. If that guy isn't there, any one of those people aren't there, then you look to trade down. Right. Otherwise, stay and make the pick. So if you have it there, you got to make. You got to make the if pick. There's a game changer on the board. Just yep. as a rule of thumb, never pass a game changer. Ever. Never. And so then, even in we'll get to this more later. But what's interesting, fun about this draft is you definitely have game changers theoretically all throughout this first round where you now have to, it's an interesting process of you sticking to your guns in terms of this is how I think through procedurally how we have to draft players while at the same time kind of navigating the waters of, you might have a couple of those things on the roster. Now it's sort of a fun, fun well, you mentioned the people that bill had drafted and that's absolutely true. He did a great job drafting those guys, Tarek Glenn. Unfortunately, his career was, was, Cut short by short by weight issues. Uh, had he been able to play a long time, I think he's close to a Hall of Famer. Right. Uh, Marvin Harrison is, and to this day remains the best workout I've ever seen by a wide receiver. Right. Uh, and and Marshall Falk is a Hall of Famer. So you know, great picks, great picks, Teddy and and and, and Bill Tobin. So there's even more reason to pick the quarterback because. The key building blocks, the left tackle, the running back, and the uh, wide receiver, the game-breaking wide receiver, are already there. So uh, there were other some interesting personalities. Uh, how did the your, what was your feeling at that point about Tony Mandridge? Um, Tony had Tony was playing at a uh, at a uh, an acceptable level. Um, he had overcome all the difficulties that he had with steroids earlier in his career. Um, it's interesting that you bring him up because he's one of the people I admire most uh, from my time with the Colts, where, where, I mean, there's still a lot of great friends that I have there among the players. But Tony went through all kinds of hell. Uh, he was a, a ballyhooed draft choice who, who couldn't possibly live up to the, the hype. Um, he failed. Um, he recognized that he was going to have to change his ways because of Commissioner uh, Tagliabue's steroid policy. He did, and he played at guard um, quite well. Uh, unfortunately, by that time, his body was breaking down, and he was subject to lots of muscle pulls. I think his, he had, if I remember correctly, he had a lot of uh, calf problems, and um, and he and he wasn't a long term player anymore. But I, the fact what he gave you as a person and as a player, uh, it, it is deserving of all the respect you can give him. Wonderful guy and a and a a great example for young players. Of if you make a mistake, own up to it, move on, rectify it, and and it'll turn out all right in the end. And that was evident to you. When you were, that wasn't while you were there that that evinced itself that you you realized that when you encountered him when you first went there. Yeah, once you're around Tony, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't help but be impressed by him and and and, and really root for him. Right. So then, okay. So then, now we kind of looked at the roster. So then, when you make a transition like that, and then looking at you know the coaching staff, obviously you've got to think through what you want to build from a staff. Were, were there any coaches you wanted to keep? From a coaching staff perspective, when you got there, I know Greg Blosh stayed, but from a general manager perspective, how does that work in terms of, is that something you just leave up to your coach with assistant coaches, or do you try to keep coaches? Um, pretty much. If I remember correctly, Gene Huey and Greg Blosh stayed. Um, 
Gene, I, I believe, was Jim Mora's pickup. I'm not. They, they actually both. Jim knew them both, and and were fine with them. Greg Blosh was a guy who impressed me from the day I walked in the building, and it's a shame that he never got an opportunity to be a head coach because I think he he had the, the capability to do that. Right. Things just didn't work out uh, for him, but. Uh, there was a chance in D.C. for a brief minute. Yeah. I thought it was going to happen. Yeah, and we actually interviewed him for the job in Indianapolis on, on Jim Irsay's recommendation. Right. Um, and it's too bad he didn't get a chance because he really is a a, a, a good guy and, and a very charismatic coach. Uh, when you're in a new situation like that and you're moving on, you and I have over the years talked about sort of the secret sauce that you have. Uh, when you're coming from one system, perhaps where one head coach is using a system, you're going to another place. What do you bring with you that that is not sort of in sense the intellectual property of, of where a club would have a vested interest in that? That's really just Bill Polians that you can bring with you in terms of how you set things up, the way you examine things that is just yours and it's not likely to be there prior to your arrival. Well, I don't know that it's entirely mine. I mean, it's it's a combination of a number of things and a number of people you work with throughout the years. Uh, you, you know, I, my father used to say, some people are stupid, but you abuse the privilege. And he, and he was, he was kind of right actually. But, <laughs> but over the years, I, I learned that you can learn marvelous things from people. So what I brought to Indianapolis was the compilation at that point in time of about 15 or to 20 years of professional football experience under Marv Levy, Paul Tagliabue, Ralph Wilson, with personnel directors like, um, and coaches like Cal Murphy in Canada, Paul Robson in Canada, um, Norm Pollum in Buffalo, Kay Stevenson in Buffalo, uh, Dom Neely in, in Carolina, Dom Capers in Carolina. So as time goes by, you build a system, but the bedrock values of that system, the values, the philosophy on which it rests is pure Marv Levy. I've often said everything I know about professional football and most of what I know about life I learned from Marv Levy. Right. So – that's the underpinning of it. And then as time goes by, you, you, uh, you add and you subtract and you adjust and, and, and you move on. A perfect example is uh, when we first got to Buffalo, we, uh, we felt that there was a hole in Buffalo's system because it didn't know how to measure a player's personality. And Mr. Wilson and his then wife, um, who happened to be a psychologist, said, you're right about that. So how do we, how do we find a way to rectify that? Well, we went searching through the community and, and ran across two professors at Canisius College in Buffalo who were essentially industrial psychologists. And they came to us and said, we've got a uh, a, a test that you can use that will uh, you, players can take it in a half hour and it will give us a, a way to tell you 
what what they are as people and how they'll they'll stand up in uh, in professional football over time. And of course, the longer you do it, the more you get norms and you and you refine it because you know what works and what doesn't. And so we started it. And I, if I'm not mistaken, we were among the first, if not the first, we were among the first to use psychological testing in Buffalo. Well, we took that with us to Carolina and then refined it even more um, so that we had a, a short version of what we did in, in Buffalo called the TAP test, which is uh, built by a gentleman, in, in, ironically enough, from Kansas City. Uh, at William Jewell College, where the Chiefs trained when Marv was the coach there, um, th- that um, was even shorter and 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 more succinct, so that the scouts could give it to the players, and then the combination of those results and the uh, and the uh, the background work that the the scouts did, uh, which we refined over time got us to the point where when we got to Indianapolis, we recognized that we needed what amounted to a full-time psychologist to really get in depth with players. Because as the money in the draft increased, obviously the amount of money you lose if you make a mistake. The risk goes up. Yeah, the yeah. risk goes up. So so we uh, it came across on a recommendation of Brian Burke, who was then the uh, president of um, – the uh, Anaheim Ducks in the, in the, in the NHL, uh, <clears throat> uh, Brian said, you know, I've got this psychologist based in Toronto and, uh, and uh, why don't you talk to her? And, and we did. And she became the lead person on all of the psychology, the measurement of psychology for players. She actually conducted the meetings at the Combine. We sat there and watched. Well, because it's also more fun for the player. To- <laughs> well, it was. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather meet with her than meet with yeah, you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We, there were guys who, who lined up to show up. Yeah. No, I, I think my first request would be when we do yeah. psychological testing for the podcast, I think that's what we should do as a system. And I think we all know how that's going to work. Yeah. yeah, I've actually already seen your results. So yeah, it's you don't not good. But, 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 but speaking of that, what, what – uh, traits are you looking for and are they universal from offense to defense is it is it narrowed by position what what do you really see uh what can you take away from that that really reveals what's important per guy i think there are basically four things number one the ability to process under pressure football is a a combination of two things physical hand-to-hand combat with the ability to diagnose what's going on and react to it tactically in front of you. So there's there's group tactics and there's individual hand-to-hand combat. So you have to know quickly how to react and, and what's around you and then how to execute that hand-to-hand combat that you're going to be involved with. So processing quickly and clearly is very important. If you can't do that, you, you really can't play. <clears throat> the bedrock of that is having the ability to learn and retain. We found out over time that it doesn't necessarily, except for quarterbacks, uh, mean much about how quickly you learn, but whether you can retain what you learn. And then, of course, processing is taking that retention and, and doing it quickly under the pressure of 
hand to hand combat. Which is why we never made it in the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> Among other reasons. <laughs> no, those were the top two. That makes, that makes three of us. Yeah, no, those were the top two reasons by far. The second is uh, is drive. And, and what that means is that the player has an incredible desire to move forward, to succeed. And that sounds – you would think, well, everybody has it. No, everybody doesn't have right. it. There are varying levels of it. And the greatest players have the greatest drive. That correlates exactly. You see a guy with a – I'm going to make up the scale here for the moment but because a lot of what I'm t- saying is proprietary. But if a guy's a 10 in drive, which right. is the top you can get, the likelihood is he's going to succeed at a pretty high level. And then when you go back and you look at the Bradys and the Mannings and all those people, that, that they're, they're, they're 10s. They're probably right there. They're right every there. Time. Yeah. The next – is is self-discipline. You have to have the self-discipline to be able to live your life in a way that, while not monastic, is very different, certainly during the season, than virtually any other profession. Because you, you have to live football during the season virtually 24 hours a day, at least six days a week, and sometimes seven. Tony used to tell the team all the time, uh, our priorities are as follows, faith, family, football, and, uh, and, and there can't be anything else. So um, that, that part of it is, is, is critical. And then finally, those things drive self-discipline, creates work ethic. If you, if you have the drive and you have the self-discipline, you will develop the work ethic. And some people have higher work ethic than other, but you don't, you can't succeed without any of those four things. Those are the bedrocks that are necessary to succeed. So, for example, if we saw a player with a really low drive grade and a, and a, and a really low self-discipline grade, that, that was going to be a problem. How, would there be a way where you would look at, say, like, we're, we're checking two of the boxes or three of the boxes? Was there one? I'm assuming work ethic is something you can kind of at some level maybe ingrain in people more than the other ones. Because if you don't have – if you don't want it, it's hard to make people want it. I think that's at some level innate, don't you think? Yeah, but it's not black and white. So if you have a scale of 1 to 10, a 6 is okay. Yeah, you know, fine. you can develop a 6. A 2, no, you're not right. going to develop that person. And so would you just disqualify yeah. anybody who oh, was yeah. like three or below? It yeah. doesn't matter what you yeah. see. There's a very famous story, and I won't mention the player's name, uh, but it, it was a player who we had when we were really good in Indianapolis trying to win the Super Bowl every year, and that's all you thought about. You know, the division, forget right. about it. We're going to – the Super Bowl is our goal. We're getting a banner. Yeah. That's, that's what we're doing. So the, uh, uh, we had a specified role for the player, and he had a very – had a checkered background. So uh, the, the psychologist's name was Dana Sinclair. And so she's making her presentation, and she's got the, the uh, uh, chart up on the board and the player's picture and what have you. And, um, and of course, we all knew the, the background. So she went through the negatives, and um, they're myriad. And there aren't many positives. Right, it's one of those. It's pretty obvious <laughs> yeah, uh, this is going to be a Yes. Problem. There are lots of red flags yeah. up there, right? <laughs> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, Dana, for goodness sake, this guy's a game changer in one small area. Uh, you know, 
can't we find a home for this guy? And she said in her typically low-key way, Bill, I promise you this is going to end badly. (laughs) (laughs) And it uh, did. Yeah, it's the kiss of death. It did, yeah. So speaking of that, um, let me let me ask something that sort of from a broader perspective where this is the an issue that perhaps works well in football but not in the outside world. Do you, you look for things like aggressiveness, excessive aggressiveness, which can perhaps work well under certain situations? But, you know, this is the guy who's going to get in trouble because he can't turn it off when he walks away from the facility. Uh, no, the self, that will show up in, in the self-discipline uh, area. You know, there are subcategories among those those four major categories that would show up in addition to the guy's track record in life. You know, Bob Troutwine, who invented the tap test in Kansas City, often said the best predictor of, of future uh, performance and, and, and the way you live your life is your, your, your past performance and the way you live your life. And, and he's right. So that would show up in, 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 the, in the grades. Everybody, this comes directly from Marv, everybody in professional football is aggressive. You would not survive if you weren't. And in fact, the overwhelming majority are super aggressive by the standards of the outside world, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. You sort of have to be. I mean, yeah, how can you survive? Yeah, I mean, you want I mean, that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the part of the job. It's like asking... Is is a Navy SEAL aggressive? Right. You know? I, I don't think we want a lot of light Navy <laughs> SEALs who are sort of yeah. unwilling to tap dance around things. Yeah. But as we've seen, as time has gone along, that same tendency that you really want can cause trouble. Well, it can. It, it can if the player doesn't have self-discipline, self-discipline and doesn't yeah. recognize that he has to turn it off when, when, when he leaves the field. And don't forget, these are young guys. You know, they, if, Now they're coming in at 20 years of age. And, uh, and so they're, they're going to be missteps along the road, and that's part of an organization's uh, responsibility and obligation to support the players and help them. I mean, you're bringing in what you hope will be close to the finished product, but that doesn't mean right. that they're not going to. There's going to be a process. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're, mm-hmm. they're going to be bumps in the road. There's got to be room to agree. You're not getting yeah. exactly. molded clay. Exactly. But so this brings up an interesting point. So, so then, all right, so to paint a picture, it's you know late 97, early 98, very compressed window. You've come from Carolina to Indy. So we've kind of gone through players, coaches, those kinds of things. I think something that I'm really interested in is from a from both an intellectual property standpoint and then in terms of what was in Indy, how did that work in terms of draft prep work that they had done for this draft, prep work you had done for this draft, and then who did you bring with you? What kind of stuff? Because I guess that's one of the weird things about the NFL is like from an intellectual property standpoint, in your brain, you kind of have, okay, you've built a board in Carolina. You know kind of what the deal is. You know what you want. You probably aren't necessarily looking at quarterback there, but they can't really protect that stuff. But then you come to to Indy, what was their grading system like, your grading system like? How did that coalesce? Um, the grading systems were different, but it was easy to translate. Um, I, I brought, um, I think, only my son Chris with me, and, and I might be he might have come later, uh, and, and Dom and Ely joined us the following year. So I, I was virtually by myself. Um, Which has got to be weird. Well, no, I mean, that's the job. I mean, you inherit people. And and what I said to the scouting staff was, you continue to speak your language, I'll translate. Right. So it was helpful that I'd been around and been around a lot of different systems 
So it was easy for me to translate. Right. Uh, now, translation is, is, I say easy. It's not always one-to-one, right? It's not always one-to-one, and it takes time. So it's, it's, it can be frustrating. But we, 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 were speaking, uh, we were speaking Spanish and Portuguese, if you will. Right. So that, that there was some... Yeah, there's some there, stuff. There's some yeah. commonality. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and so I said, you just keep doing everything the way you've been doing it and using the verbiage that you've been using and the grading system that you've been using, and I'll translate. Right. So um, uh, that's the way it worked, and, uh, and we did fine. Now, not everybody uh, who uh, was there wanted to stay, um, and I recognize that. Right. And, um, and, and as time went by, there were a couple that I felt, you know, were not really good fits, um, and, but that's part of the – the game too, and um, people recognize that. Professionals recognize that. But we worked fine all the way through the draft. I, I didn't make any changes, and and we had a great draft board. And um, you know, four or five of the people stayed. You know, and 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 went on and were with us the whole way. Bob Turpening retired, I think, after the first Super Bowl. So, um, you know, it was a good. It was a it, very smooth. Because I guess people don't necessarily think, because I think people think about this in like coaches where they have their system, right, that they bring. This is how they play. From a general manager's perspective, you have your system and then you've got to figure out how people fit into that, right? That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, when you're talking about scouts, the basic job is does, does, he, does he have the work ethic to do the job? Does he have the vision to look at a player and grade him and see him? And does he have the self-discipline to f- fit within the system that we're going to, that we're going to install, which in our case w- was going to be pretty different from what they had previously used. Our system was in, in many ways um, the exact opposite of what they, what they've been using right. in terms of how you did things. And then we refined it over, over the years as well. So, but that again, that's par for the course, and it's par. It, it's the re, general manager's responsibility to put that all together. Right. And then once Dominelli came from Carolina, we'd already been together for five, you know five years. And that's that got to feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, than yeah. Now I had a somebody that could actually run the department right. on a day to day basis the mm-hmm. you want. and implement mm-hmm. the system. And we spoke the same language Everybody and had speaking Spanish. Yeah, exactly. Me gusta. Mm-hmm. So take us a little bit behind the scenes and, and talk about the dynamic that's going on in terms of how you have conversations with people, how you weigh their input, how do you put it together, when do you cut that off, when do you synthesize everything and make your own decision? How does that work? Well, first of all, you, you get together and you and when I came in, you go through, you sit with the pro people and and the, re, and the retained co- coaches and and talk about personnel on the team at the time and Jim Irsay had pretty strong feelings about some individuals as he did throughout the years he's a good judge of personnel he knows the game I, I probably should back up and say I never worked for an owner in all my years in professional football that knew X's and O's the game on the field and personnel as well as Jim Irsay now his public image isn't that right people talk about the yeah. uh, you Jack know the Kerouac. Jack Kerouac, yeah, yeah and the guitars, yeah. the guitars and all of that, which, which is drafted by. yeah, which is part of him. Yeah, but he is a solid, solid, solid football man. So, a conversation about a player, a conversation about a 
contract for a player, a conversation about who to draft, strategy of the draft, construct of the football team, what coaches to hire, would take, in each of those instances, 15 minutes. Right. For the other people with whom I've worked, two, three, four hours. Mm -hmm. Days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So it made everything so much more efficient. So is, much more. Is efficient. that because he grew up in the yeah, game? Yeah. 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 He, you know, Jerry Jones once famously said he's going to count every sock and jock. Jim did count every sock and jock when he was a young guy working in the equipment yeah. room. Yeah. He knew everything in the building, soup right. to nuts. Pillar to post. Yeah. And then do you find a, you know, like Dom or someone like that that you have the relationship with? As things start to settle down, are you are you sort of turning to some people more because you value their input more than others? Aside from Jimmy, were there people that really were the were the key decision makers with you, or is it is that just a Bill Polian thing? No, 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 no. It was uh, Jim always jokes. Uh, I don't know if he's half joking or being serious, but he, he always compares me to a. And it's embarrassing. Not embarrassing. It's funny. He compares me to a kind of a racetrack tout, you know, a guy in a trench coat with the racing form in his back pocket. And, you know, I go out to Iowa and come back with Bob Sanders, you know, <laughs> Here we go. Or, or, or Dallas Clark. It isn't that way at all. Uh, uh, and I think he's only half joking when he, when he says it. But the, the, uh, um, you develop a system. So our system was broad-based on the bottom. Ultimately, every scout was only responsible for 20 schools. Now, most teams at that time gave a scout 40 schools. We hired extra scouts. We were one of the first to increase our scouting staff, again, thanks to Jim. Right. Um, because we wanted, with the advent of juniors coming in, we wanted the area scout to be responsible for everybody on the team. So the area scout that had Penn State and 19 other schools in that, that geographical region was responsible for everybody on the team except the new recruits. Well, everybody else, he had to know. So instead of making two, maybe three visits there, he made six. Mm -hmm. right. So he developed relationships among the coaching staff, among the support staff, learned the kids. Um, and, and so that was broad-based. So if there was... If there was an issue with a Penn State player or we had a question, the area scout would be the first people, person we would go to and say, okay, tell us about this guy. And then as we went through the process, in the offseason, the position coaches would come in and they would study the players, but nowhere near in depth that the area scout had. Then we had cross-checkers who were over the top. Um, and, and their job was to – we had one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and their job was to synthesize everything that the area scouts had done and try to line them up geographically in, in chronological order, you know. And, and all those people would be involved in three major meetings, one in December – that would where I would not even be in the meeting. I'd be at the at the management council salary cap meeting. Um, they, they would be the personnel director that would conduct that meeting. They would put up the preliminary board. 
Interestingly enough, when you do a regression study, you find out that that board's usually the most accurate one. Hmm. Right. Uh, uh, the, then there would be a meeting post-Senior Bowl. So all the bowl games have been played. We've studied all the bowl games. Everybody's had bowl game assignments. Coaches would not have been involved at that point. And that one I would sit in, and, and, and we'd, we'd rejigger the board. And then uh, one post-combine uh, where the coaches would just get a, a brief glimpse of the players at the senior bowl and then a further glimpse of them at the combine. But it's really only a snapshot. And then we, But then we'd have all the numbers. Right. So we would know who failed the physicals, uh, <laughs> you know, who ran fast, who didn't run fast? Uh, we'd know who if we, we if we had to go back and retime a guy because the area scout would say, "Ah, man, that's that's not the right time. This guy somebody, runs." Somebody mm-hmm. clicked it a little. A little yeah, 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 yeah. So um, that would the scouting staff was involved. In, that's seventy-five to eighty percent of the process. And then at the very end, we had a management group, which consisted of the head coach, the general manager the assistant GM, the personnel director, and the pro personnel director, who all were part of the management team that finally set the board up. So it went from that broad base all the way down to this small group. That the coordinators were involved. The, the offensive and defensive coordinators were involved. And in, down to the small group that ultimately – finalized the product but it was in it was broad based from the get-go all the way through to the 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 final meeting after the combine where the scouts really had the most input because they're the people that know the most so it was a collegial effort all the way not a not a one-man show and in fact even when that small management group got together for three weeks prior to the draft that was pretty collegial too, because we'd go through eight or nine hours worth of tape and meeting. And then, you know, I'd wander around, I'd stop by the coordinator's office. I'd stop by the linebacker coach's office. How do you feel about this guy? How do you feel about that guy? Tony and I would talk on a daily basis. Jim Caldwell and I would talk on a daily basis. Jim Mora and I would talk on a daily basis. So, you know, it, it it's it was a collegial effort. It it wasn't the guy in the trench coat who who, who said it, it picked right, it was Dallas Clark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> Put your dollars on Thunder Gold. Yeah. Shit, we're gonna yeah. rip. Yeah. But so in this draft, so uh, so in lining up your board for this draft, obviously, I think from a fan's perspective or public perspective, there were you know uh, to use a Mel Kuyperism. Uh, there were four players that he kind of thought had separated from the field in this draft in Andre Wadsworth, Charles Woodson, Peyton Manning, and Ryan Leaf. In setting up your board, did you have the quarterbacks at one and two, or did you have positional players above them? And then does position need sort of trump how you then reconfigure the board? No. Uh, the, the way Mel does things is exactly opposite to the way we did things. Okay. Yeah. We did not rank them one through 336. Okay. We, our board was horizontal and vertical at the same time. It was vertical by round, one through seven, and then free agents on the left-hand side of the board, and horizontal by position across okay. the board. So 
if a if a quarterback had a first round grade, there he was. Right. If a tight end had a first round grade, there he was. Right. We we didn't rank the quarterback higher than the, the tight end. So how much of the best player available mantra is just a total misnomer? It's not a total misnomer, but it's completely misunderstood. Again, the draft analysts on television, of necessity, this is not their fault. It's, right. the, it's, it's the because of the media. Yeah. 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 Uh, speak German, and we speak Spanish. Right. So there's very little... Do you think that's a convention of just TV or do you think it's that they just haven't wanted to sort of acquiesce because it makes for better television to just kill people on TV to be like, oh, well, you didn't take like in this draft when Randy Moss is falling and it's like, well, why is he not? You know, he's the best player on the board. Why is he not going? Well, because they don't have all the information. Yeah, right. They, they, they don't have the psychological information. They don't have the background information. They don't have the medical information and they shouldn't. Right. You know. What what other than a presidential election? There's no you know, yeah. Why is anybody's medical records well, <laughs> available to the public? To that, that, that point, the, I don't know that we are giving away right. medical information <laughs> in political campaigns, but you never know. I think that might be all right, but who, who are we to judge? Football, we also have their actual grades, but yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Uh, but you know, I think with what you're saying though, too, the system you use is really a. a uh, you're at sort of calculus and they're at algebra. I mean, theirs is more straightforward. They're just yeah. laying it out. It's linear. Here we're on an X, Y axis, which is right. by vert, you know, by nature, a much more complex, intricate process. So in looking at this, so I'm, since I'm lousy at math, I, 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 I missed what you said, but it sounds like it's right. <laughs> right. That seems fair. <laughs> but so in looking at this, like even from uh, kind of like a, Standpoint, it really just came down to you guys deciding, hey, we need a quarterback. This is the direction we're going to go. And then it disseminates into which one do we want? Well, like? that, that, that's the final piece in the puzzle. After okay. you've gone through all of this, all of the psychological testing, all of the medical testing, all of the measurable testing, height, weight, speed, et cetera, uh, and, and all of the measurement of how a player plays on the field, which makes up the scouting report, which, by the way, is about – a computerized, you know, four pages when it's all said and done. Um, and, and we read from that. Right. Then the first thing you do is put them in the appropriate rounds, right? Let's talk first round only. You put them in a round. And then the next thing you do is grade them within the round. We're right at the end now. The management group has gotten together. Right. And now we're going to grade them in the round. So you've got a quarterback. You've got a pass rusher. You've got a running back. You've got a wide receiver. You've got a couple, couple of tackles. So the first thing you do is grade them as players. So within the first round, it would, you know, player, the offensive tackle could be player one. Right. We actually stacked them within the round so you could see where they ranked. The The board was very visual for a couple of reasons. One, it's easier to operate on game day, uh, on, on draft day that way, which is game day for the personnel right. department. And, and secondly, when Jim or other people who had reason to see the board came in, they could understand very quickly what was going on. And Jim could understand on draft day – 
exactly what was going on because he could see it right in front of him. Right. This is the decision-making process. This is why we're doing what we're doing. This is yeah. all the stuff that yeah. we're This is how it, we're, we're not going to trade um, the, that pick in the, uh, in the first round that we have a first-round grade on for a fifth and a sixth. I don't care what the chart says. Look at the board. Now, also, we're getting really deep in the weeds here, so if I'm not making myself clear, stop yep, me, please. Will. Rick will uh, slam his fist <laughs> into the table, dictator style. The, the, um, in any given first round, and the television guys are just beginning to realize this, you don't have 32 first-round grades. God didn't make that many. Maybe have 24. No. 12. The average is 20. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, the average is 18. Excuse yeah. me. The average yeah. is 18. Now, 32 teams with 18 first-round grades, they're going to be different players. Mm-hmm. So in the end, you might end up, we think mathematically, and we did all this after the We did all these studies after the draft to make sure that our system worked. Um, we think mathematically that, you can at, at 24 or 25, you might look into a first, the guy that you had first on the board, particularly if you run an offensive or defensive system that's kind of unique. Right. Um, but after that, it, they're truly second rounders, which is why you see Bill Belichick, whose system is somewhat similar to ours because Dominelli worked with him in Cleveland, uh, why you see him trade down a lot. Because his reason is not because he wants to accrue picks. It's because he realizes that he's going to get the same player at 36 that he's getting at 26, and he can pick up a third to do it. And getting value. And getting value, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, When you're making a decision like that, it, that is sort of from a, a general qualitative standpoint in terms of this is the kind of guy you could get. Are there are there sort of anticipatory uh, concepts or reckonings in terms of if I do this here, there is a guy down there I really want, but they're more likely to take him. Or is there a chess match in terms of trying to anticipate what other people people do once you get into that point where it's a bit more fungible? Well, I guess to follow on to that just a little mm-hmm. bit, mm-hmm. specifically to this draft, you had a quarter. You guys were quarterback hungry. You had Arizona who didn't need a quarterback. San Diego probably needed a quarterback, and then it was sort of a smorgasbord after it. How does that impact, just specific even to this one, of sort of the complexity of when two doesn't need a quarterback and everybody values the quarterback so highly, how does that throw off the trade algorithm from a draft perspective in that sense? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, quarterbacks change the the whole picture. They're different. Uh, They're anomalous. So let's talk about quarterbacks to begin with. First of all, if you have a quarterback and you're in position to draft him, meaning you're probably one, two, or three in a given in a given draft, in these days, um, go get him. Don't don't hesitate. Just no matter what happens, pull somebody's the coming up to get. No matter, yeah, pull the trigger. Right. If if you are at eighteen or nineteen or twenty-two or wherever Andy was uh, in the Mahomes draft then you have to put together the ammunition to get up to where you think he might go. And that takes a lot of doing 
in terms of creating the ammunition and then doing the work before the draft to lay the groundwork for the trades. And then you don't make the trade until the player's on the clock because you don't want to give up all that ammunition if he's gone to somebody else. And that happens fairly frequently. You can have a trade all but made and then bingo, the guy goes right in front of you. And now you got a mm-hmm. not, mess. Now you, well, it's not a mess. You just but, go back yeah. to square one. You know yeah, who you're going to take. Board and you just follow exactly. Our mantra, we had a number of mantras, uh, which the guys that work for us now repeat. And, and it's kind of fun to hear them repeat it. Let the board speak to you. Mm-hmm. Let the board speak to you. You know, no, It'll tell you who to take. If you've done all the work, it'll tell you who to take. But with a quarterback... That's different. You got to go get them because they're valued so highly that they're going to be drafted well above where where they should have been. You know, RG three should never have been drafted where he was if you just compared him as a player to somebody else. But the position itself carries a premium, so it's you, too valuable. It's yeah. too valuable. You go pay it. So, at any point in the process, did anybody call you about trying to get to one in that draft? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carolina called, and and actually the ironic thing was Dom was doing the calling. He was at Carolina <laughs> yeah. at the time, Dom Vanilli. And they offered uh, Kerry Collins and half the team for the rights to Peyton. Uh, right. and, and it was tempting. It was tempting. Like how much did you think about it? I thought about it a fair amount. Mm-hmm. I thought right. about it a fair amount. And Dom, to his credit, did his job. He didn't editorialize. He just said, here's the deal. And in fact, I said to him, what do you think about it? He said, I can't talk about it. You know, it just... It, which was right. He was absolutely right. Um, and uh, after the fact, when he got with us, he said, I would have killed you if you made the deal. <laughs> yeah, that would have been. Well, cause where was that in proximity? Because obviously uh, San Diego moves up to two. Yeah, that's probably in, in, in about five weeks early out. April. Yeah. Okay. Five, yeah. So um, they were very aggressive. Um, there are a couple other people. Oh, uh, um, San Diego wanted to swap. Do you think they wanted to swap to get Leaf? Or no, they, they wanted, wanted Peyton. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bobby told me after the fact they wanted Peyton. Right. Uh, what happened, you know, in the lead-up, because we were talking about this a lot at the time, you know, Peyton was sort of the front-runner for a long time. And then at some point, whether it was just the press or whomever, there was sort of this acceleration of Ryan Leaf to, well, maybe he's really the guy. What was the genesis of that, and did you ever take that seriously? Well, um, First of all, I don't pay any attention to, and I and I, I strive not to pay attention to noise prior to my doing the film work. So I couldn't have told you who the front runner was, um, you know, prior to my sitting down and looking at the tape. But as soon as we had our first scouting meeting in Indianapolis, it was clear that there was a 50-50 dichotomy on the scouting staff. 50% had Manning number one, 50% had Leaf number one. The irony was that the 50% who liked Manning didn't dislike Leaf necessarily. They thought Manning was better. They saw some warts on Leaf, but but not many. Um the guys who disliked Manning kind of disliked him intensely. And I think that mirrored what was going on in the media. Now, there was so much noise once we got to Indianapolis and prepared for the draft that 
you couldn't avoid it. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you could try as you might to it's block here, it out. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, was it was in the ether. The ship has sailed. Exactly. Yeah, was, We're now pregnant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're walking down the hall from the, from 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 getting a a, a, a <laughs> pop at the at the soda machine and. Somebody in the bookkeeping department says, "Who do you like better?" Right? Yeah, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. But yeah. so, had you done any quarterback evaluation in Carolina prior yeah, to? Yeah, I, I had. Yeah. So, did you have a sense kind of going into? Oh, this I had. A, yeah, I saw Peyton play um, three times because they had a tight end that we that um, the previous year because they had a tight end that we drafted and who, who played well for us for about seven or eight years at uh, at, at Tennessee. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. I saw him play against Mississippi twice because okay. the tight end was at Mississippi. And um, um, I had seen him live twice his senior year, including when he beat Kentucky. That came from behind to beat Kentucky there yeah. and famously led the band in Rocky Top after the game. Right. Um, so I knew a lot about him. Didn't know as much about Ryan. I'd seen Ryan play, I believe, once, maybe twice. Um, so I had more work to do on Ryan. But with this 50-50 split, on the coach, on the scouting staff, what I said was, okay, tell you what, I'm going to go back to square one. You guys go back to doing what you do, getting ready for the rest of the draft, which I will implicitly trust you with, and I'm going to go back and look at every pass both of those guys threw throughout their college careers. Now, in those days, we didn't have – cut-ups the way it we do now. Really yeah. Yeah. It was, was not easy. It was a process. It wasn't yeah. the 15 seconds. And I went to our video guy and <laughs> said, I need every pass Peyton Manning threw and every pass. What did his face look like? I, it, like it, his eyes got wide. Yeah. He said, you mean this year? I said, I, I, no, in their entire careers. Oh, he said, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I said, well, he got to. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he did it to okay. his credit. Yeah. He did. And, uh, and I went back and looked at it all. I had Tom Moore look at it all, who was our offensive coordinator. I'm sure Jim Morrow looked at it all. Now, Jim knew Peyton really well because – The New Orleans. He, the New Orleans connection. Right. Yeah, he knew Archie well. Mm-hmm. He knew Peyton well. He, I, I think he'd seen Peyton play in high school, if I'm not mistaken. And so Jim was – I mean, he was trying very hard to be objective, but, but it, it was harder for him than it might have been for me because I didn't have any real connection to Peyton. Right. You know the eye in the sky doesn't lie, so you see you see every throw. Uh, you can judge. The one thing you can't really judge is arm strength. At least for me, that's I think it's my failing. I, there, I've been around evaluators who can, um, and I'm getting better at it as time goes by. But I was not real good at it then. I had to see it live. What do they look for in watching on TV? Ro- well, in, on tape. On tape, yeah. yeah. Uh, you're looking for processing. How quick does he get the ball out of his hands? How accurate is he? How well does he read defenses? How well does he react to pressure? If the play has to be extended, how well does he do it? Does he panic? Does he take sacks? Um, how does he how does he read defenses and what does he go through progressions? But that really, when it's all boiled down, what you're looking for is processing speed, poise. Speed of delivery and and accuracy. Arm strength is not terribly dispositive. Okay. So you can have an average arm, which Peyton did, and be fine. Right. Um, but you can't have a weak arm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a weak arm, that limits what you can do. Um, ironically enough, um, 
after I finished that process and after Bruce Ahrens and Tom Moore had finished the process, we all were trending pretty heavily toward Peyton. Although it wasn't, in my mind, I was, I was gonna try and play the devil's advocate. I was gonna make sure that we turned over every stone. Um, so I said to Jim Ursay, would you mind if I asked Bill Walsh to take a look at the tape? He said, no, not at all. So I called Bill, who was then out of football, I think. And uh, or he may have been Stanford, I, I can't remember which, but I think he was out at the moment. And I, and I said, you know, would you, would you mind looking at the film for us? He said, no, not at all. So we sent him the tape, and he went through it, and he came back unequivocally, Peyton, between right. the two. Now, I think he was later quoted as saying that he might have taken Brian Greasy. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure whether he said that tongue-in-cheek or, or because it was a better fit for his offense. But he was clearly, to him, he, he gave us a very thorough report, and, and Peyton clearly was the guy. Well, I think Peter King had done something where he had actually gotten in touch with six general managers or sort of thought leaders in the NFL and sort of pieced it together. And I think out of that Peter King article, that's when Bill Walsh said yeah. that Greasy probably was a better fit. Maybe you get more assets trading down. Oh, yeah. Okay, and, right. Yeah, I think right. what he was thinking was you could trade down from one, maybe get Charles Woodson, get a second, maybe get the third that you replaced. But you didn't have that luxury because you didn't have a third-round pick. And that's Greasy correct. probably was going to be gone. Yep. So – were there things as you went down that that sort of the Ben Franklin balance sheet there and the pros and the cons? Was there conflict in that uh, Ryan was better at certain things and Peyton was better, but but Peyton had more good things or he, or the things that he wasn't as good at, he was less bad at than Ryan? Or how did how did what was the calculus? Well, don't forget that the the, the process from thirty thousand feet it, it involves three things. One is the physical. How does the guy actually play the game? The next is the emotional and psychological, and then the, then the third is the physical, the, the the medical part of it. There are three parts. Right. Uh, there were no medical problems with either guy, um, but as the process went on, the clearly, 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 uh, Peyton, from the psychological, emotional. Uh, perspective, intelligence perspective, um, was separated himself pretty widely. And all of us in the building, without hesitation, all agreed that for a quarterback to succeed, you can get by with less than great physical skills, but you can't succeed for one minute without great emotional intelligence poise, uh, the, the so-called intangibles. Right. And that's where the spread began and only grew right. over time. Do you think a lot of the fervor was sort of the spookiness of, you know, Peyton never got past Florida, that game against Nebraska in the Orange Bowl did not go particularly well in Tom Osborne's last game. And then Leaf, who didn't have, I guess it's a two-parter in the sense that I think from a fan's perspective, Peyton definitely had the better supporting cast, probably on offense with Peerless Price, Marcus Nash, a freshman in Jamal Lewis. Ryan Leaf had the five receivers, but not high-level talent. And then you you get to kind of the bowl games and, you know, had that cl clock not stopped early 
and they get the they get the snap off at the end of the Rose Bowl, you know, he's maybe within a play of beating Michigan and then potentially, you know, fouling up the whole national championship that year. Well, he had a good Rose Bowl game, I'll give you that. Yeah. Um how many of those receivers that Peyton had went on to good careers in the National Football League? The answer is zero. Uh you know, Peyton made the receivers, not the other way around. Tom Moore, who's a who's who's the greatest football philosopher I've ever come across, said fairly recently when asked about a coach who had who had been around Peyton, he said Peyton made a lot of guys good coaches. Right. <laughs> made a lot of receivers good, a lot of coaches yeah. good. Uh, the the these were the things that were out there that to this day I still can't figure out. So there was and, and this these are all from non football people. This was right. all in the media. Number one, he couldn't win the big one. How the hell many games did he win? A ton. A ton. Right. Right? Uh, secondly. And not a lot of teams beat those Florida teams. Yeah, that's correct. Those Spurrier Florida teams yeah. Yeah. were pretty good. Yeah. Secondly, he's a product of the system. I, to this day, I still haven't figured it out. You know, T. Martin had a great year the following year, but – you know, is it the system? No. Well, because they didn't exactly play like they did in That's exactly right. They played in 97. That's exactly right. He made the system, for goodness sake. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if you watch tape, you, you could see that. It, it was clear. That's where I got, it, as the process narrowed down, I got a little annoyed because all the noise that we were hearing was clear that the people hadn't watched the tape. They were simply regurgitating what others were telling them. So... That was a you know it was a, a a a small pain in the neck, but um, again, brushed it aside, tried not to deal with it, um, and and told the scouts and the and the coaches don't don't deal with it. But in truth, um, the physical part of it did not separate until we went to the workouts, which were as it turned out were back to back, I believe, or or a day apart. Uh, we went to Knoxville. Jim got us a private plane. We went to Knoxville, took the whole crew. Peyton worked out. Uh, I think he had Nash with him, if I'm not mistaken, among some others. And um, and the first thing that struck me when he worked out was that he had such a threw such a heavy ball. I mean, he had a good arm. He, the, there was a lot of revolutions on that ball, much more so than I'd seen on film, which I. I told you, I, I don't. You got to see that live. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not a good judge of that. Even with 4K, I don't think that's that's happening. On <laughs> yeah. TV. So, uh, that was somewhat surprising to me, and, and certainly a positive. So that put that to rest. There's some funny stories that surround that too, which I'll get to in a second. But um, then we went out to work uh, to watch Ryan work out, and uh, and I remember standing next to Tom and saying, and. and Peyton did everything we asked him to do. Tom conducted the workout. Yeah, so how does that workout work? Mm-hmm. So you 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 get there. How much control does the player have? How much control does, you know? Well, we would like have? the player to have zero control. Okay. Mm-hmm. We, we want it. It's called a private workout. Philip Fulmer agreed to it completely. I, as I remember, recall, he didn't even come to the workout. We went and talked to him afterwards. So do you deal with the coach or the agent to book that? How does yeah, that work? the agent. Okay. And, um, and so – Peyton provided the receivers, and uh, and Tom conducted the workout, and uh, and Bruce. So he did. He threw every route we wanted him to throw. Um, he he interpreted what they were telling him. Uh, they were actually coaching him up. 
telling him what the routes ought to be. Tom has a drill where he can measure arm strength where you, you, you stand in one spot and you, you don't uh, move your feet. You just throw the ball with your arm and he keeps moving the receiver back. And Peyton made every throw. Um, and then when we got to Washington State, the agent and Coach Price had decided that they were going to run the work, workout. We were just spectators. Okay. Uh, which was, you know, it's not ideal, but. but how, much, how often does that happen? Nowadays, quite a bit. Now, because of the advent and televised pro days, it's all orchestrated by the agent, and it's not worth the darn. But that kills you guys from an evaluation. It does. It does. I, actually, as time went on, and the agents or, and, and the coaches, because of recruiting, orchestrated the pro days even more, I wouldn't even go. Mm-hmm. Right. We, and, and we wouldn't send anybody from the executive staff. We just The area scout would go to get the numbers. And, and that's all. Do you think that's the trend that's going to happen now with the combine with like the Rams and the Broncos not sending scouts yes. to the combine this year? The, the television show has made it. Has wrecked. Has, why do we go? So yeah. what what's the point? Do? Like, what are you Watch the tape. Yeah. <laughs> so it, Watch the television show. Right. Get mm-hmm. the numbers. Yeah. That's all. That's all it's good for. Uh, can we digress a little? Sure. The combine because it's, it's – it, here's, the, here's the, the combine was formed many, many years ago. Because there were two scouting combines, combinations of teams who shared information. Blesto, which stood for Bears, Lions, Eagles, Steelers, talent organization. The Vikings came and became known as Blesto V. And SIPO, Central Eastern Personnel Organization, which had among uh, its members the Giants, the Redskins, um, the Cowboys, etc. Those organizations had what was called open disclosure. So each club would hire a scout, put him into the organization. The organization was run by a personnel director, the combine, and then they in turn would provide you scouting data. It was designed to cut scouting costs. As it as that process grew, <clears throat> it was thought after consultation with the college coaches that we should do all of the workouts under one roof if possible. The coaches did not want them missing class. Those were in the days where most guys still had a semester to go after the, after the bowl games, right. and graduation rates were becoming an issue. Yeah. So the coaches said, we don't want them leaving campus to go work out 32 different places. And these guys also needed to get jobs. Correct. Yes, correct. That's that part of it. So we said, okay, the combine directors – um, said Jack Butler for Blesto, and I think it was Dick Mansberger for SIPO, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be on that. But they, they said, okay, we'll do an individual combine. SIPO did theirs, if I'm, if I'm correct, in Seattle, and Blesto did theirs in Detroit. And then after a couple of years, the personnel people got together. This was well below the level of general managers. This was the hardcore personnel people got together and said, why are we doing this, you know, in two separate places? Let's make the coaches even happier. We'll do it over four days in one place. Centralize it. Everybody will come. And so because the two scouting combines were the driving force, the, 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 the generators of this, it became known in the, in the business as the combine. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the media picked up on it without ever knowing what the derivation mm-hmm. of the word meant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the fact of the matter is 
that what we see today is an outgrowth of that, but like everything else, it's grown like topsy and devoured itself. So I remember, you know, in the old days when uh, you still when SIBO become national, right? Yep. Um, you would get the the the, so the small computer printout and then the accordion computer printout on every guy of every right. single thing that ever happened to him. But they still were still trying to outdo one another somewhat. I mean, there's still a bit of a competition, it seems, as to who had the better information. It wasn't. They didn't share everything, it seemed to me. Oh no, you, the two the two yeah. competing combines didn't right. share anything. It was just so but you're except right. the data at exactly. the combine. And, and that was where it, it, in, the, in the common parlance, people didn't understand the difference between sort of the physical entity of a combine and the intellectual idea of two information gathering organizations. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and um well, I'm going to save. Well, this let me backtrack and yeah, so finish then, the. Well, here, since we're on it. Yeah. So then going into the combine this year or going into the combine in 98, what 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 were you looking for? Did Manning and Leaf both throw at that combine? Were you able to neither out of that? Neither throw. But but let me let me okay. let me go back and, and, and give you just the final piece yeah, in, yeah. in the, the combine workout. What we now know is the combine. It was George Young famously said this, and he was a thousand percent right. If all we got out of the combine were the medicals, that would be enough. And that, in effect, is why it was formed. Right. To make sure that we got thorough and complete medical examinations on every player. And to this day, no player has ever had a medical examination at any school or college he's ever been at that's as comprehensive or as thorough, or as accurate as that which he gets at the Combine. And every year, many of which the public never hears about, we discover players with congenital conditions, with chronic conditions that make playing football for them dangerous. Right. And so that, that serves its purpose. And George often said, if that's all we got, it's well worth it. So who brings in the medical staff for it? Where, do, where does that come Every from? team mm-hmm. brings so in their... in your own medical staff. Yep. But, and then you guys don't share any of that info, do you? Uh, yes, it's shared. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all of that's shared. Yeah, so San Diego's doctor may look at knees. Indiana, Indianapolis's doctor may look at shoulders. Okay. It's a, and sort of all, assembly line kind of... And, right, and, you and, just kind of go down the yeah, line. and all the information is shared. And, and then because of the... We actually built Lucas Oil Stadium with the combine in mind. So there's a big below, uh, beneath the house, behind the house area, which which actually accommodates MRI machines and things like that. So unless they need some uh, really sophisticated test, it's all done inside the building mm-hmm. in, in, in Indianapolis. So the net net is if you're going to get hurt, Indianapolis is the place to get hurt. No question you, about you it. You get an MRI in the stadium. Yeah. Yeah. So – the medical part is the driving force behind mm-hmm. it. Then the next most important thing are the measurables. Because <clears throat> even though an area scout does a great job, oftentimes you won't have the ability to measure a guy on campus. You certainly can't run him during the season. The pro day might not be his best day. So you want height, weight, speed, and you want timing on certain drills. Each team values certain drills high, more highly than others uh, by position, but that's okay. It's the measurables that are the next most important thing. So medical, measurables, now mental becomes the next, the, the, the M is simply a, an alliterative way of saying it. Uh, it. It's psychological, mental, 
Those are the so-called 20-minute meetings, which in many ways are a joke, but uh, <clears throat> because no psychologist can tell you in 20 minutes right. what a guy is. If they could, it would be a very different field. It would be a different yeah. world, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, the, the – uh, but those are the three most important things. The on-field drills are meaningless. Okay. In my view, meaningless. So none of you don't really any of those. If we missed them all tomorrow, it would make it would work a damn bit of difference. It's crazy. I never in in thirty five years in this business. I have never seen a player upgraded or downgraded based on his combine tape. Okay. Do you think other GMs have? Not many. Okay. Not many. Lasted long. But it's good for the TV show now. Yeah, I, mean, I think oh, it, it's it great. It's, it's, a, it's great a really TV. good TV. You know, it's like the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. one other thing I wanted to mention. <clears throat> Bill Cowher called it the underwear Olympics. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> one thing is a sort of a player's guy for a lot of my career that I, I thought was great was that when you talked about those medical conditions, many of them were undiscovered by the players themselves. Correct. And so, I mean, you save people's physicality, lives, their lives yeah. in, in doing things. So it's not sort of this crass meat market kind of thing. I mean, it, it really stand, had a real-life value for these people. Oh, yeah. You mean you hear a story in the media, almost every, Montez Sweat last year with the uh, yeah. yeah. Hearts. I mean, there's been there's yeah. almost a player every year, at least yeah. from a media public perspective, exactly. fan perspective, that comes yeah. out every year. And there's year. some that it doesn't come out, and but they've yeah. been told. Yeah. Back to the combine now with Ryan and cool. Peyton. Yeah. So we're now in roughly the 1st of March, and so we've done a lot of work. And they're beginning to separate themselves, but the but the meeting itself is going to be pretty important. So, did you have a lean going into the combine? Uh, probably, in my mind, lean Peyton, but but I Not was heavy. trying hard to yep. remain neutral. So uh, Ryan is scheduled to go first because it's done alphabetically. So we show up, we come to our room, uh, we tell him and his agent, you know, where he's supposed to be. Let's call it 7 o'clock, which is when they begin. No Ryan Leaf. 7.05, no Ryan Leaf. 7.10, no Ryan Leaf. 7.20, the horn blows, beep, no Ryan Leaf. So we're thinking to ourselves, what the heck happened? Well, and to paint a picture, you guys are just in an empty hotel room, right? Correct. Yeah, so there can't be anything weirder in the world than yeah. a bunch of football guys. Empty hotel room, guy doesn't show up. With an empty chair. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was like Ronald Reagan. Yeah, exactly. the yeah. Chair. yeah. Clint what Eastwood. You just needed Clint yeah. Eastwood there. Yeah, what are we doing? Yeah. 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 What's going what's gonna to happen? <laughs> so I immediately start reaching out to people trying to find. I get no answer from Lee Steinberg, his agent. And I get a call from uh, one of the beat reporters in Indianapolis who said, Ryan Leaf missed his meeting, correct? I said, yes, that's correct. And he said, well, Lee Steinberg has said that you didn't tell him what time the meeting was supposed to be. Because there's so, a consistent pattern of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, the better angels of my nature zipped my lip, and I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't respond to that except to say that's not true, <laughs> but left it at that. Yeah. So I'm not sure... I had a conversation with Mr. Steinberg the rest of the way through the process. It, pro it it wouldn't have been a good one had we done it. But then he came out in the paper the next day and said Bill Polian gave us didn't give us the right information. 
It's his fault and so on. So, okay. Yeah, this is that's probably on the the flag list if you're doing the uh, whiteboard. The lights are beginning to flash yeah. now. That's orange red light special at yeah. the NFL Combine. Exactly. Not taking yeah. this one. You're, exactly. You're yellow now. Yeah. Then you're headed for. Yeah, red. we're not but, far yeah, off. Right, right. This guy blows us off. You know. Do you think that was them trying to orchestrate not going to Indianapolis? Yeah, Steinberg later said it was true. I'm not sure that was the case, but that neither that's neither here nor there. So now the next night is Peyton. Okay. Right. So he comes in. As I remember, he's got a sport car coat on. He definitely had his eight and a half by eleven legal pad. He sits down, very pleasant. We all say hello, and he says, um, I, "I have a few questions for, for you guys. Would you mind if I, if I asked them?" We said, "No, go ahead." No, has this ever happened before? No. Okay. <laughs> so he's asking the questions. What's the offense going to be like? What's the system going to be like? What's Marvin Harrison like? What's Tark Glenn like? Uh, what's Marshall Falk like? Uh, what kind of routes are we going to throw? What kind of protections are we going to have? And he's, Tom and Bruce keep answering, and Jim keeps answering, and we keep he keeps writing, and all of a sudden, bump, <laughs> the horn blows. Yeah. This is speed dating. Yeah. So yeah, You guys boom. look around, yeah. and you're like, what? The 20 minutes is over. Yeah, yeah. So he gets up. He said, "Thanks a lot, guys." He said, "I really appreciate it. I got some really good information. <laughs> I, I really, I really hope you take me. I look forward to playing here. I thank you, Peyton. Okay, goodbye." And we looked at one another and said, "He just interviewed us. <laughs> what are we supposed to what, do? What's going on? What did we learn here? Well, we learned that he was the same guy that we worked with yeah. for 14 years. Right. This is what we're getting. Ourselves. This is what we're getting. Has that happened since? Did that? No. Happen? No." Most kids are scared to death. Had anybody else missed? So, like in your career, so just to show the anomaly this was, had anybody else missed a meeting like that at the combine? Never. So, you have probably the worst, weirdest thing yeah. in the history of your career, and then easily the most interesting thing ever. So, now I don't want to tip the punchline here, but the story where Peyton talked about if, if you drafted him, it was going to be a process, what he wanted to happen. Can you tell that a little well, bit? Well, that's, 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 was that later? That's later. Yeah, it's yeah. a little later. That's later. Um, that was at the workout, actually, at Tennessee. We sat down with him, and one of the things he said was, um, you know, if you draft me, I'll be in the day of the draft. And I said, you can't do that. It's against the, it's against the rules. You have to wait for a week after the draft before you can come in. And he said, well, you figure out how to do that. I'm, I'll, I'll be there the day of the draft. Yeah, kick me out of the building. Yeah. <laughs> so we did figure out a way yeah. to do it. We got a high school uh, north of north of our facility, and Bruce Aarons went up there and worked them out for a week. Yeah, it became Colts Light at some high school. <laughs> yeah, the league later yeah. passed the rule that said you couldn't do that. Right. But it's the Peyton Manning. Right? Yeah, we figured One. it out. And then you figured at that point, drive is probably at like a twelve. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we're we're off the chart. Yeah. It wasn't also, and could you get me the playbook so I could start studying yes, that? Absolutely. And Ryan Leaf's blown off. Yeah. The so, meeting. so like, let's go through this. So, so we've we've had this kind of unique experience at the combine. Were you so were you just outrageously impressed by Manning's thing? Did that kind of weird you out? The interview? No, 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 no. It's very impressive. Okay. It's extremely impressive. Um, you know that he was that prepared, that he was that detailed, right. in terms of what he was getting into. Uh, and and I think wanting to get to know the people he was going to work with, right. 
So fast forward to the workout, and Peyton's workout is very impressive, and the, the personal interaction with him is very impressive. We get out to Ryan's workout. Which did you think about not even working him out after the combine went that bad? No, no, we were we were. I chalked that off to the agent. Just we a were, weird thing. Yeah, let's let's not hurt the kid. No, let's don't penalize him at all. So we get out to the workout, and um, and the workout was okay. I mean, it was it didn't it, it didn't exceed Peyton by a wide margin. Right. You know, all the noise that was out there said. Oh, Brian's the much better athlete, you know, and 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 Peyton's just a product of the system. No, that, none of that yeah, was these true. These eyes didn't lie. That just didn't. Uh-uh. Yeah, none of that was true. So, and did it throw you? Because he didn't do the same work, so it was even hard apples to apples. To it, it was, right? but we got enough to where he could. And, and I remember, I, I may have said this before. I remember remarking to Tom during the workout, you know. His arm's not as strong as Peyton's. And Tom said, yeah, you're right. So that dispelled that myth that was out there. And apparently, Bobby Bethard and his people had worked him out just prior to our coming in there. We were part of a larger workout. Bobby, I guess, had gotten a personal workout. And they were already at two. The trade had happened. Yeah, yeah, they were already at two. And so... We were coming in as Bobby was leaving, and we said hello, and, you know, I've always been friendly with him and actually revered him. I Really, he, he's a guy I look up to. Wonderful guy, too. Wonderful person. And he, and he looked at me, and, and he said, how did Peyton do in the workout? I said, he was great. His, you know, his arm's better than we thought it was. And he kind of grinned that sort of crooked Bobby Bethard yeah. grin yeah. and said, you interested in trading? <laughs> and I said, I don't think so, but if we are, I'll give you a call. So do you think they were speaking <clears throat> by him at all? I think they were. Yeah, I think they were. But they didn't have any leverage at that point not to do it, right? That's correct. They were in, in badly in need of a quarterback, and I don't think – I think they felt that they had to take the chance. And, um, and, and pr- in, in truth, in the same situation, I probably would have done the same mm-hmm. thing. Uh, so anyway, the workout goes fine, and then um, we go and meet with Ryan afterwards and Coach Price. And so Jim Morris said to Ryan, um, keep in mind, juxtapose that to what Peyton had told us the previous day. Um, Coach Morris said, now, Ryan, you can come in a week after the draft, and then we expect you to be there in Indianapolis for the whole time through OTAs, et cetera. There were no restrictions such as there are now. And um, and so Ryan said, oh, gee, Coach, I'm not going to be able to make it. And Coach Morris said, why? And he said, well, I got this trip to Las Vegas planned. <laughs> My buddies and I have planned it for quite some time after the draft, so I'll be about two or three days late. So we thought, okay, <laughs> that's not thrilling. Yeah, that's a little – And when you juxtapose that yeah. compared to what Peyton had, had said. Had anyone ever said anything like that in a meeting like that? <clears throat> not really, not really. It's <laughs> – yeah. it's, I mean, it's off the beaten path. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so you think at this point maybe it's not Steinberg? Maybe it's Leaf who doesn't want to go to Indy or something's wrong? Well, I mean, certainly it was concerning. So now we're in the, in the, in the process of just feeding all of the background information, all of the intangible information into the process. That comes in 
late in the process mm -hmm. because it's a combination of doing court filings, you know, yeah. looking at court records and going back and talking yeah. to people at the school and what have you, um, other than the coaches. So, and that's for any player. So as, as time went by and as we talked to more and more people, it became fairly evident to us that Ryan didn't have the emotional maturity to be able to handle what was coming at him as in that particular case. And I hate to use this phrase because it's hackneyed and way overused. But the guy who was going to play quarterback for us was going to be the face of the franchise and he was going to face big-time fan pressure because he was facing or replacing the very popular captain comeback, Jim Harbaugh. Right. So this was a much harder task than either of them knew, really. Right. And I had never brought it up in any of the discussions. But internally, we said, we better find out if this guy has the emotional maturity to handle this, because he's not going to come in as a popular choice. Right, this is going to be a dicey... Yeah. yeah. I mean, speaking of Harbaugh, was there any thought that you would... Because uh, you were going to move him. Was there any thought that San Diego might want Harbaugh? Yes. Well, I called Jim in... This is roughly the same time frame, you know, March sometime, and and said to him, we've made the, the choice that we're going to go with the rookie. And we're going to put him on the field. Okay. And and I said, I, I, I don't expect you to be happy with that. And, you know, I, I, I wish we'd have had you in Buffalo. Um, but it's just a case where we think we can get a guy who can change the, the, the franchise for 10 years or so. And that's the decision we made. But we owe you a heck of a lot. And so you tell me where you want to go. I'm, and we'll effectuate it. Wh wherever you want to go. If you want to be released, that's fine. Uh, we don't want anything in return. You, you just tell me where you want to go. Right. And um, I, I, to be truthful with you, I forget what the actual circumstance was. I, I, I thought that he that it might have been his preference to go to San Diego because, you know, when he would end up there in '99 anyway. Yeah. Yes, but for some reason. He ended up wanting to go to Baltimore, and we did a paper trade where we sent them for future considerations or something like that. And uh, and we remained friends uh, after that. And ironically enough, um, my son Brian was let go at Notre Dame and, uh, and had recruited the West Coast when he was at Notre Dame. And Jim came to him and offered him a job. And Brian went and or wanted to interview him. And I said to Brian beforehand, you better address with Jim right up front. I mean, if he has any right. grievance against me, don't visit the sins of the father on the son. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I didn't think he – I did because I got a letter from Jack Harbaugh uh, sometime in the spring of that year saying thank you for treating Jim fairly and professionally and we want you to know that, you know – he would have liked to have been there, but if it had to go this way, it couldn't have gone any right. better. So I felt that there wasn't any hard feelings, but Brian went in and they talked about it. And Jim said, oh, no, no, no. He said, your dad was straight up with me. I understood. Part of the and, deal. And so we, we remain friends to this day. You know, we play golf every now and then. And I, I, oftentimes I see him and, you know, it's great. You know, I, as you know, I, I became friends with Jim later when I 
ended up putting together and conceiving that whole trip for him and the and the team to Rome, uh, where he got to meet the Pope and have his youngest son baptized in the Vatican. But Jim, in referring to those days, said to me, because I talked to him about it, because of our relationship, he said, yeah, he goes, at that point, I was in the twilight of a mediocre career. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you talk about Jack and Jackie, just two of the great people. I've, I've, you, you'll ever, Jim's parents were, yeah. were on the trip, just wonderful people. And you could see how they could wind up with two sons who wind up as coaches and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah, they really, they're really great people. And Jim's a great guy yeah, great and a great guy. coach, as is John. Fine. And right. s- smart. Yeah. Fu- yeah, very smart. So to set the stage, we've now gone through the combine. We've gone through the workouts. You guys have done your due diligence. You've gotten the medicals in. We're now getting kind of to that point where it's decision-making time. Are you guys allowed to have any additional contact with the player between that post-individual workout and draft day? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In fact, in those days, I'm not sure there was a limit on the number of times you could bring a player in. Okay. There is now. Uh, what is it now? Uh, I believe you're allowed 30 visits, and it doesn't matter. It's 30 no matter where. If it's 15 for one player and right. you know 14 other, it's 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 that 30. Can't. Period. That's it. They may have increased it some, but I, but it's not significant. It's limited. So um, I don't think we were faced with that issue at that point. But Peyton had to come back to straighten something out that had to do with the physical exam. It wasn't anything important, but he had to come back. And um, this story has been repeated numerous times, but it's true. Um, After he had gone through all of that, um, maybe it's two weeks before the draft, he stopped by my office and we exchanged pleasantries. And he said, they want me to go to New York in advance of the draft. And, um, I don't want to go if I'm not going to be the first pick. Can you tell me what you, you know, what's on your mind? And I said, well, I haven't made up my mind for two reasons. Number one, I'm a procrastinator. You'll find out if you come here. You know, I'm going to turn over every rock and then do it again. Right. Um, so much so that it, you'll get annoyed. And. Second of all, Mr. Ursay wants to be part of the process in New York. So we don't want to steal any thunder from that. So he said, well, you don't have to worry about that. I won't tell anybody. So I said, I, really, I'm not inclined to be able to tell you at this point in time. I, I, and furthermore, I haven't made up my mind completely. So he, he was annoyed. So he said, well, you know, that really puts me in a bad spot. So I said, I'll tell you what. If you give me your word that you won't reveal this to anybody, I will let you know like three days before the draft what the choice is. It will have been made then, but you can't steal right. Mr. Arce's thunder. Uh, and, he, and he said, no, 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 I, you got my word. So I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll be in touch with you. So we shook hands. He got up and walked out and stood in the, turned around and stood in the door jam. He said, I just want to leave you with this thought. Uh, he said, if you, if you pick me, I promise you we'll win a championship. He said, if you don't, I promise you I'll come back and kick your ass. Right. Now, I don't know whether he meant me personally yeah, like, uh, or the Colts. But it was an interesting moment because it, it showed the real competitiveness. Right. I mean, he truly wanted to be the number one pick. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the competitor in him. You know, he wants to be number one all the time. Then you had to enter fight camp immediately following that comment to make sure you were really the <laughs> yeah. that you didn't do it. Yeah. But the, the process, as the process, <clears throat> excuse me, um, went forward, um, there was one more funny interlude. Um, the idea that that Peyton had a ceiling on his arm, meaning he could only throw it accurately at, let's call it, 50 yards, began to float around there in the ether. So like a fool, um, I fell into it. You know, It started to bug me. And, and during draft time, I typically would wake up about 5.30 or so in the morning and, and thoughts would be running through my head and I'd jot them down and come to work and, you know, deal with them. <laughs> so this idea of the ceiling on his arm began to float around. And I, I couldn't quite get it out of my head, even though we'd worked them out. And, and we, you know, it didn't appear to be there, but you never know what happens in a game. So... It was either Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday. The reason I know that is because I went to church first and then came into the office. And as it turns out, Tom and Bruce were in the office. A lot of our families hadn't come yet, so we were, we were working all the time. And uh, so I went back over the, the Peyton Manning tape and charted every pass. So I find that roughly at about 60 yards – the accuracy starts to wane, right? Now, right. how many passes do you throw at 60 yeah. yards? Not but, a lot, but but a couple. Yeah, but it's in my head. So it took me, you know, three or four hours or so to go through the thing. So I wandered down the hall, and Tom and Bruce are there. Tom Moore and Bruce Aarons. Mm -hmm. Bruce Aarons is the quarterback coach. Both of them are quarterback whisperers. So I said, listen, you're going to think I've lost my mind, but – I just went back over the film, and Peyton does have a ceiling of accuracy at about 55 or 60 yards. So Bruce says, you're right. You've you lost your mind. <laughs> oh, Tom says, listen, we won't throw any passes over 60 yards, okay? <laughs> Seems like a fair deal. Seems like that's where we're going to draw the line. It's not going to deter us from running the offense, yeah. but we're just not going to have... It doesn't put a big crimp on you yeah, know, no, the game. Yeah, we're not going like to have that. the full air raid <laughs> arsenal at our disposal. So uh, that, that, was the, that was the last of the, uh, of the funny uh, anecdotes that, that took place during the whole process. So coming out of all that process, did you have – because I know we've talked about this before where you try to think about players having comps who they project to be. Did you have any comps sort of out of this process of what Peyton might be or Ryan might be as he get to the final stage of this decision? As I recall, I don't think we did. Okay. And it's strange because we did it with virtually every other player. Yeah. I mean, in, in a meeting, we would always say, who is he? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and I do it to this day when yeah. guys ask me to look at tape, you know, I'll write down who I think yeah, the I think comparable is. is. And, and, but I, as I recall, I don't think we did it. I, I don't, I certainly don't recall it ever coming up. And I think, it was important enough to our process um, that if it had come up, we, we would have talked about it. But because he was nowhere near the arm strength of Kerry Collins or yeah. Jim, Jim Kelly, um, who, you know, who I'd been around, he had much better arm strength than Brian Sipe, who, who Dom had been around. Um, 
Bruce had been with some, and Tom had been with some pretty good quarterbacks, but there was really, I, I, I just don't ever recall discussing but, a comparable. Because even in college, had there been anybody, because you go back and you watch the tape in college, it's crazy to watch. He was doing line adjustments and sort of adjusting plays, a la what he was doing with you guys, what he did in Denver, you know, as a junior in college, yeah. that they're probably, that you just don't see in college football. No, no, no certainly not in those days. No. Uh, you know, the whole idea of the no huddle and, and doing what we did, the protections and, and changing the routes at the line of scrimmage, effectively Tom and Bruce invented. Right. And then it spread back to college it's football. A thing, but it's it become a was thing. It's become a thing. unique, yeah. Yeah. A totally unique situation. Yeah, it was brand new, yeah. So one thing I wanted to get on the record, I did get to mention to one time, my first football I ever owned was a Tom Moore football. <laughs> and it was orange for some reason, but I love that football. But let me, let me uh, ask something that's perhaps overly philosophical as you and I often get um, and what triggered it was this idea that Peyton really didn't want to go to New York and then be embarrassed by not being the first pick how do you in terms of elite athletes whether you want to break it down proportionally or, or, or what you think is the dominant thing I've always felt like there are certain guys who at their core are motivated by winning but they're even more who hate losing more than anything and just that's so distasteful to them they gear their life to avoid that what's your experience with with elite with a Peyton or other elite players like that is it is it one way or the other particularly I think it depends on the individual um in Peyton's case uh it, it was the latter I don't think he would have been embarrassed had he not been the number one pick but the fact that he was losing out to somebody else was was really important to him. He's a, he wants to be number one. He wants to be the best. Um, but I think it depends on the, uh, on the, on the individual player. Um, I, I forget, I, I hate to, I hate to say this without, um, without citing the individual that told me, but I can't remember it at the moment. But um, someone told me when I, when I first came to the National Football League, winning's great. But the pain of losing, it was Coach Levy. The pain of losing is, is even worse. It's, it's far greater than the joy of winning. Mm-hmm. Which is always a complicated profession to go into. Yeah. Where the, yeah. The reward is so fleeting. So as we sort of get to the end and wrap up, going and kind of looking at Leaf and Man, when did you make that final, final decision, like leading up to the draft, that you were going to go with Peyton? I think the final decision was probably, um, well, on the flight back from Ryan's workout, I think I said to Jim Mora, unless we find out something that changes the picture dramatically, everything we believe in tells us Peyton. And he said, yes, that's right. And then we went through the rest of the process where we got all the rest of the information in. And as I said, the gap widened when the so-called intangibles came into play, particularly maturity on Ryan's part. And and not that he was a bad guy, but, but, you know, there was just a difference between the two. Peyton was far more ready to take the job and, and embrace the job and handle the job. And so I'm guessing maybe 10 days or so before the draft, I went into Jim and said, it's, it's Peyton. And, and 
Jim being Jim said, eh, it's a decision I would have made too. <laughs> In total alternate universe time, let's say something had come up on Peyton that had a medical something. Do you think you would have taken Ryan Leaf at one? Boy, that's a good question. Um, probably not. Probably not. Would you go on Woodson, you think? Maybe. Maybe. It, 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 there was... There were there were enough um, questions with Ryan to think. I don't know if we'd have gone that high. We probably looked to trade out. I think. Right, and then Kerry would have been the quarterback in Indianapolis. Yeah, mm-hmm. the world would be a very different yeah, place. Yeah, that's probably right. Probably right. No, I was just going to say, I you know, I, it's interesting that I, over the course of this, uh, whether it's Tony or 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 Kerry or Ryan, there's some a lot of a lot of nice really redemption stories around the league where where guys encounter problems early on but do turn their lives around and become big contributors oh yeah yeah i ran into ryan um about a year and a half or maybe two years ago and i can't recall where but i didn't recognize him because i think he had beard at the time yeah and and he came up and said hello and 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 i said to him at the time i said i'm really glad that after all you've been through um, things have worked out for you. Keep doing it. And yep. Keep telling your story because it's a, a great story of redemption and, a, and, a, and I couldn't wish you anything but the best. And I, I sincerely meant it. I mean it now. He's a, he's a really good guy who went through a lot and his story is, is, is really instructive for young people. They can learn a lot from the trials and tribulations he's gone through. Perfect. Well, thank you guys for a rousing episode, and uh, we will be with you guys soon. 